Welcome to Algie's Investment Podcast. This episode is going to focus on value-style investing. Uh, my guest today is Ben Whitmore, a fund manager at Jupiter Fund Management. Um, he's one of the best value investors I have ever met. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you here today. Well, Algie, thanks so much indeed. I don't think I've ever had such a nice introduction. So thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Perhaps for those people that, that uh, don't know a lot of the, the jargon we use in our industry, could you, could you explain to our audience what value investing actually is? Yeah, so I think value investing means different things to different people. But to us, it means looking for lowly valued companies that are often out of favour, something's gone a bit wrong, they're not in fashion, and you can buy them at real bargain prices. And, and that's what we're really trying to do, trying to exploit that fear and greed in the stock market. When people have absolutely had enough of those companies, they don't like them anymore, and you can buy them for, if you like, a, a real knockdown price. So this is basically as far away from momentum investing as you could possibly get. Yes, that is right. Now, now obviously, we're hoping these companies regain their momentum uh, in, in, in terms of, like, but when we buy them, you're absolutely right. There's normally a problem or a, a fashion reason why they're, why they're not in favour. Did you find you, 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 you had to read up on your subject a lot to get... To, for your investment style to evolve to be your own or was it just people that influenced you yeah no i think um so obviously there, there are people who influence me, but there's the most fantastic uh range of books you can read and investment i guess like cricket it does attract a lot of books and value investing uh because it's been around for such a long time has got so many books, not just about the actual mechanics of value investing, you know, what bit of the report and accounts to look at. But there's a whole range of books, more about the mind and behaviours in stock markets and how to sort of think about that so that you don't, uh, if you like, fall into the trap of falling in love with something or, or f shunning something permanently, how you keep a sort of disciplined and sort of constant approach to the markets. So there's so much you can read. And and I'd probably say that over time, I, I've really tried to read a, a lot of books about investing and more broadly at the edges around it. So at, at the end of our, our, our chat, I'm going to ask you uh, about a couple of books that you, you, you'd recommend young investors to read. <laughs> but, but before we get into that sort of um, detail, could you give me uh, an, an sort of overview of your investment strategy uh, within the team at Jupiter? Yes, so uh, when we're speaking to our clients, we describe firstly our investment philosophy. So i.e. we're value investors. We're looking for lowly valued companies because you know the evidence over time says that lowly valued shares deliver above average returns because we want to deliver above average returns to our clients. It comes with a drawback. It doesn't work every year. Um, there's been some very tough periods for value investors over history, but over time it does work. And then we say to our clients, in order to do that, um, we need to be quite disciplined. So we screen the stock market, both in the UK and globally. 
we have certain characteristics that we're looking for around valuation. We want low valuation uh, characteristics around cash generation. We don't pay much attention to profits. We pay much more attention to cash. Cash is obviously what pays bills. Balance sheets, we, we don't want too highly indebted companies. They're, they're a bit too dangerous. And once we've narrowed down the market, that gives us a pool of companies which we'll go and do some more in-depth research on. And what we're looking for, if you like, our sort of sweet spot is a series of companies which have got, if you like, a strong franchise. They've got a good market position. You know, customers come to them for something. But where something's caused the stock market to give up on it, that then presents you an opportunity with a lowly valued company that generates a load of cash. The balance sheets can keep you uh, from suffering from a setback. And then that, that, that's what we're after. That is our sweet spot. And uh, you mentioned that you know, there'd been some difficult periods for value investing in the past. I think probably you've experienced two of the worst five-year periods for value investing during your 25, 28 years of being a fund manager. How on earth do you get through those those difficult times? And I would have thought one of those difficult times would have been quite recently when we had a, a period where central banks were just keeping interest rates at incredibly depressed levels. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The five years to August 2020 was the worst five-year period for value investors uh, versus growth investors in financial market history. So in the last roughly 150 odd years. I think if, you, if you're strong enough to believe in what you're doing, it can get you through it. And I think the other really vital thing is I had a period investing when I was investing on my own. But I think the dynamics of the team are very powerful and, and they're very good at ensuring everyone gets through a tough period because in any uh, single moment, there might be someone on the team who's thinking, oh, crikey, this value investing is pretty tough. But other people will be feeling stronger at that moment. And as a team, I think that's a very powerful way of getting through tough periods. So you you mentioned I co-managed the, the Global Value Fund. My co-manager there, Derma Murphy, uh, he, he, he was very, very instrumental in, in getting through the last five-year period, I think, yeah. And um, are you confident that your UK fund, your, which is the UK Special Situations Fund, um, over a sensible time period, call it 10 years, can outperform the All Share Index? Is it is it set up to do that? Or are you just an absolute return investor that's seeking to take low-risk bets with stocks that are very cheap? So we, I think we, we think about absolute valuation and absolute risk very much so. So we don't think about, if you like, the index when we construct the portfolio. We want to think about a group of lowly valued and absolute term companies. And 
you know, I, I would feel very confident over 10 years that would be the case. We would outperform. Now, clearly you can't promise anything, but history would show that that, that, that absolutely is the case. And has, has, has value as a style over the long term uh, kept up or outperformed growth as an investment style? So over the long run, it's beaten the most highly valued shares um, when you look at the long run history. But it's been punctuated by periods when it's done very poorly to growth. So over the very long time it has, but it's had periods where it's done very poorly versus growth investing. Yeah. Um, but your investment style doesn't stop you from owning uh, you know, the, the companies in in sectors that are always considered to be growth sectors. I mean, have you got any examples? Uh, I mean, do you invest in technology stocks, for example? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You, what one of the, that, that we don't have anything that we're not prepared to look at. And in, in the technology sector, there are, there are lots of lowly valued companies, companies that have had issues where the stock market's a bit concerned and, and you can buy them very, very, very cheaply. So when I think about a couple of names, there are three names we mm -hmm. own where they are major technology companies. Uh, one is Nokia, the Finnish 5G company helping mobile networks. Uh, one is Intel, uh, probably not quite the largest semiconductor man manufacturer anymore. And the third one is uh, it's a, a new name, Kindrel, but that used to be IBM's IT services business. That's the largest managed IT services business in the world. And all three companies, for completely different reasons, have very low valuations at the moment. And there's absolutely nothing uh, that's going to sort of stop us avoiding any sector. What will stop us is if we can't find that good balance of you know, risk reward, low valuation, a good business at its heart, and if you like a problem that we think is temporary rather than permanent. And valuation is always a always it's such a broad metric to when you're, when you're looking at a portfolio, it's quite crude. Uh, but uh, is your UK fund on the same valuation as your global fund, and and what is that valuation? metric that you think is a fair guide to look at? Yeah, they're, they're, they're actually on pretty similar valuation metrics. I think the difference between the UK and the global fund is the global is obviously much more diversified. You know, we're picking from, you know, across the world. And we can be a bit fussier because you've got so much to pick from. But the, the metric we like, which um, is a metric that was sort of uh, a Graham and Dodd metric. So Graham and Dodd were, if you like, the founding fathers of value investing. Their most famous pupil is Warren Buffett. Now, from their teachings, the, the, the way people define value has, has morphed, has changed. But one of the things they said um, was that you, you're better valuing companies on their average earnings because that gives you a feeling for their earnings power across a business cycle. So we use something uh, called the Graham and Dodd PE, which has been recently more popularized by Professor Robert Schiller, called the Schiller PE. And this is the 10-year average earnings. 
And that just gives you a better sense of across an economic cycle, their earnings power. And just to put that into context, basically stock markets, the long run number is about 17, roughly 17 times the 10 year average earnings. America at the moment is about 30. 30 so, times. Yeah, a lot above the long run average. And our portfolio is about between eight and a half and nine. So we're a long way below the average. So we, we think we've got a, a lot of value in our portfolio. A lot of downside protection. But you must have learned some lessons about investing over the last 10 years, which have been, they were brutal for so many fund managers. Um, and it is, it's wonderful to see you come out the other side of that. But were there any lessons that you'd like to share that that definitely resonated uh, for the future? The, a couple of key characteristics of our investment process now are formed out of mistakes. So companies that generate a lot of profits but no cash, uh, they're things to be avoided. Uh, cash is the key thing, not profits. So I definitely made a few mistakes on companies that seemed cheap on their profits but weren't cheap on their cash and then secondly the the other key one is the balance sheet definitely i've made mistakes where the balance sheet appears okay but when something unexpectedly bad comes along it revealed itself to be not nearly as strong as you think and and i think those two things have probably been the key areas which i've learned like on companies don't take chances there. And over the years, have you found uh, um, a handful of examples of creative accounting? Or, or, or is, is there a, a whole host of businesses who are just not quite truthful with the numbers? So I, I think, as everything, it's, there's no such um, clarity. There are a few, obviously, outright frauds. Um, but with accounting, profits are, are subjective and the, the cash is much less subjective. And I, I think that's what we tend to focus on. So I remember um, when I first started at Schroeder's, um, I came home on a weekend to see my parents and my dad had his own business. And I said to him, oh, dad, dad, what are the profits um, in your business? And he said to me, he said, what would you like them to be? And I, I was completely dumbfounded. I said, I, I said, but dad, I've been learning all about profits and the profit and loss account and everything. I said, you're not meant to say, what would you like them to be? I thought they are, if you like, what they Set are. Set in stone. And so he, he, he explained to me uh, the difference, if you like, between the profits and the cash flow. And talking to him a lot about that really helped me understand about how businesses really work and what the difference is between cash and profits. Yeah, I, I really learned a lot there. The independent research that uh, you paid for to be done on the fund, uh, I can't remember the name of the company that did it, but they did some independent research on your holding period um, of stocks um, and whether you uh, sell the stock uh, in good time or whether you hang on for it too late. Could you remind remind me what were the conclusions of that research, and, and have you changed uh, anything about the way you run your money as a result? 
Yeah, so um, we used a firm called Cabot Research. Um, they're based in Boston, and we felt that we weren't strong enough in portfolio construction. We didn't have any data. We didn't have any evidence about how to construct the portfolios, or if you like, the optimal portfolio construction. So Dermot found this firm, and we got in touch with them, and we sent them a sort of 10 years of data, and they reported back to us in a way you get like a sort of end-of-year report at school. And they said, we absolutely love the buying process. Don't change that. But there are a couple of areas where you're, if you're like, you're, you're not good. You, you need to improve. And those were, we had something called an endowment effect. So we held on to our winners for a bit too long. Mm -hmm. So they said you should look at that. So look at your winners after three years and, and make sure you're not holding on to them for too long. And then secondly, um, we didn't sufficiently buy our new positions promptly enough. So we're always trying to sort of, if you like, buy them ever cheaper. But what they said is that once you've decided a share is cheap, just establish a full position size. So that was like a problem with sizing. And they said that you're, you're leaving behind investment returns here. And so we had to think about this. And we had another client that had always done a little bit better than our main fund. And it turned out that their portfolio construction rules were very similar to the rules that Cabot were proposing. And so we thought about it and we thought that, well, come on, we let's try and put these changes into place to enhance the returns. And so we, we did that. And what was absolutely, we found this, we, what we found was absolutely, well, I don't know whether we found it hilarious or frightening, but Cabot said to us, I can't believe you're listening to us. And we said, well, what, why wouldn't we listen to you? Because, and they said, well, most fund managers we speak to, they listen to what they say, and then they find a reason not to, to do anything to change. And we said, well, we're going to try and change because you've shown us that we can make things better for the clients if we change. And I think that whole process with Cabot, in a nutshell, sums up what we're trying to do. If we can find a way to get better, then we don't want to uh, just sort of not do anything. We want to sort of investigate it. And if we really think it's a good thing, we want to put it into practice. When we're talking about risk management, how, how, do, how do you go about managing risk? And the risk could be having too much money in a stock, having too much money in a sector, a theme. There are all sorts of risks there. that Some are obvious and some aren't. How, how do you manage risk? Yeah. Cabot, this firm which I talked about, uh, they reminded us that w w over time we're getting 60% right, 40% wrong. Now, once you understand that you're getting 40% wrong, um, you, you think about risk in a different way. So we think about the downside. So every stock we pick, clearly we're hoping it's going to be in the 60, but actually 40 are going to be losers. And so once you understand that, you think about risk in a different way. So you think about a spread of investments. So you don't want to say have, you know, 
10% in your best idea because how do you know it's not going to be in the 40% bracket? So we want to spread so that any one investment that goes wrong can be won't, won't upset the portfolio return. And then we want to spread across sectors and industries. And what I always say is that if we could ever get 50 stocks, which were 50 businesses, that each of them had nothing to do with each other, that gives you a fundamental diversity. And I really think about that. And we try and have a spread of low valuation because that, I think, is the best way of reducing risk to capture that value effect rather than, if you like, piling it all into one or two very cheap sectors. How do you keep yourself from selling too early when a, when a stock is beginning to, to, to really generate some decent returns for you? What is your sell discipline? Yeah, so we're not uh, buy and hold forever investors. Um, the, the evidence for us is that we make the returns when the stock market decides that that below average valuation company, uh, if you like, migrates and becomes an average company. And it's that change in valuation as the perception changes is so important for us. And so we tend to find that the bulk of our returns come within a three-year holding period. So we're, if you like, recycling the capital away from things that have been reappraised positively by the stock market and putting it into new lowly valued names. And um, I, I'm not not a gardener, but um, one of the fund managers at Schroders used to say that um, a portfolio should be like a garden. It shouldn't be all flowering at once. You should have things that you're planting, things that are growing and things that have, if you like, flourished. And so we're, we're, if you like, we're always taking capital out of companies that have been reappraised and putting them into new, lowly valued names. Are there any sectors that you have found historically that you simply just don't own? No, I, over long periods of time, we don't want to exclude anything. Now, there can be long periods where we don't own anything in sectors where we just can't see the value, but we, we, we don't want to exclude sectors. Uh, we want to have a look at everything with an open mind and then decide to exclude them rather than have, if you like, blanket bans on things. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And, and I know it's not an objective to have a, a portfolio which is, uh, looks very dissimilar from, from the index, um, in our industry, we use a jargon of active share, which is the percentage of the portfolio, which is n not explained by the index. What what percentage of your, let's use your global value equity fund as the example, what percentage of, of that portfolio is, is not reflected by the index, by the world index? Yes, so on that measure, um, we'd be about over 98%. So, 98. Yeah, so a hundred percent would be looking nothing like the index, which I think is probably impossible. Um, we'd be very high nineties, but you can't beat the index over time if you look 
too much like the index. And it's really important. You've got to do something different if you're going to have a chance over time of beating the index. And sometimes with all the risk models and portfolio construction, people do forget that. And, and you must do something different. Otherwise, you haven't got a chance. And so people listening to, to, to this, this podcast will be you know, it, it, itching the question, you know, when's the best time to invest? Looking back over history, when have you found over the cycle, the economic cycle, um, however long that is now, when have you found your style of managing money has, has naturally struggled or, or, or naturally um, had, had the wind behind it? Yeah, so it, it does naturally struggle if the market is dominated by a narrative of a, of a sort of new thing. So in the late 90s, it struggled with the sort of the, the birth of the internet. Um, and it also struggled in, as we've talked about, in the, in the sort of five years to sort of 2020, when the market was dominated by, you know, the very, very powerful global tech leaders. And so it does struggle in those type of markets. Um, and that tends to be because when people are looking at a new era, valuation becomes much less important. And so people buy a new era and, and leave behind everything else. And, and so it definitely has struggled in those periods. And, and if we were looking out from today on a 10-year on time horizon, um, I mean, your, your style uh, actually had a very, very uh, good period. And, and it looks to me as though at the moment um, the style uh, has had time just to regain its, its, its composure a bit. Um, but so looking out from here on a 10-year view, has the strategy, uh, do you think it could, it, it, it could double investors' returns over 10 years? Yeah, so um, my maths isn't quite good enough, but that's probably roughly a compound rate of sort of 7% or an exactly, bit. Exactly, yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think we'd be... V- disappointed if we didn't do that because the starting valuation for our companies is so low and when you look back over time if you start with that low valuation the chances are you should do above average returns and if you like the long run nominal return for stock markets have been about nine percent so i think we'd be disappointed given this starting valuation yeah Yeah. so ben Talking about the team in a bit more detail, what sort of characteristics are you looking for when you're employing new members of the team? Well, um, uh, I I hope they don't mind this description, but I I think to be an investor, you've got to be a bit contrarian and and that leads to a bit of stubbornness. Mm -hmm. I think you've got to be prepared to... I don't know, be a bit of a maverick, do something a bit different. Mm-hmm. And not everyone wants to do that. You know, we're brought up broadly to be quite consensual, you know, for obvious good reasons. Mm-hmm. And doing something different means that you sort of stick out a bit. 
And and I think it's really important that um, you know people are comfortable in their own skin and they're not worried about doing something different because that doesn't appeal to everyone. And I, I think that is quite an important characteristic actually and it's it's quite a difficult one to sort of uh tease out when you meet people but i think if you're going to achieve um returns that are better than the index um by very definition you've got to do something very different from the index and doing something very different means you 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 run the risk of looking you know stupid when everyone else is doing something else and so i think it's people who are you know a bit you know contrarian stubborn a bit bit maverick to who are happy to to be a bit different i think that is is very important how do you manage to get a team to to hum um to, to really tick um effectively once it expands to sort of high single digit numbers yes i think it's it's very interesting that um i personally found going from three to five um more challenging than going from one to three i found from going one to three extremely easy and i think that's because you have a very sort of easy way of disseminating information you don't have to work that hard at it because you're all sitting if you like next to each other Mm -hmm. and there's a very narrow group and that's a very easy way of of running uh a team three it's a very i think a very easy way when you go to five though i think it does become harder because you have all those different spans of contacts if you draw a line from each person to every other person suddenly you've got many more lines around and i think that was um that was definitely brought home to me um when um Claudia came back from her maternity leave. I think she she definitely observed that the the team wasn't functioning as well as when it was a three. And so, you know, as I've chatted about before, one of the things that I really do believe in is that nothing's ever perfect, and you're always looking at ways of getting getting things better. And so, Claudia found someone who specialised in sort of team dynamics, and we actually um asked her to help us to think about ways to you know how do you structure a team with like variety of experience variety of ages to get communication information flowing people understand everything that's going on within a sort of busy complex team and really she 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 was absolutely vital in um thinking about the best way of uh running a team and knitting it closer together and you know i I think that was really really important because i think it's not easy and i think if you when you increase the numbers in a team there's i think always going to be a period where you you need to really sit down and think about how do i get the best out of everyone because i think it is genuinely harder and and uh just uh, touching on that uh, in a little bit more detail I've always been very keen on uh, employing people or investing in people who have tried to be extremely good at something in their in their life outside of fund management. Quite often, it's it's sport, and for some reason, people who try to be excellent at sport seem to bring something to 
to the party that uh, others don't do quite so well. What what is it about sports men and women that that you, that you think uh, gives gives them an uh, something different to the team dynamic? Yeah, I I think it's a it's a it's a very interesting point. Um, I was a very mediocre sports player, but uh, we we've got one uh, ex professional rugby player and one um, lady who is ex uh, international modern pentathlete, and I think what what they bring in particular is um a, a sense of sort of like constant improvement so if you think about it i think any professional athlete is always uh trying to get better that that's the number one thing they're they they're happy at having input uh happy to be coached happy to be coached happy to always strive for getting better and better what what do we need to practice to get better and and i think um you know, there both um, Dermot and Claudia have really not overtly, but I think subconsciously that has really helped um, me understand the benefit of like practicing, looking at your weak points, trying to sort of work ways around those to get them better bringing in a coach to, to help you address things. And I, I think that it's a very powerful mentality that because one of the things I have observed in fund management is that a, a lot of people think they're the finished article, age like 27. And, and as we know, that's, that's completely terrible. And no one's ever the finished article. And that notion that you're always trying to get better, can you look at things to improve the process, how the team works, all those issues. I think having people that background just does push you that way and, and is very, very helpful. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a, a very powerful dynamic, that. I think that's a wonderful observation for anyone who's looking to come into our industry and, uh, and thinks that uh, by just by reading books um, and working hard for, for 10 years that they, they are the finished article. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. All content on the Algies Investment Podcast is for your general information and use only and is not intended to address your particular requirements. In particular, the content does not constitute any form of advice, recommendation, representation, endorsement or arrangement and is not intended to be relied upon by users in making or refraining from making any specific investment or other decisions. Guests and presenters may have positions in any of the investments discussed.